Folks, this is Jack Spearco with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things that we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't. Today is March 29th, 2013, and it's Friday, 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 which means it's time for your calls to 866-65-THINK. Again, 866-65-THINK. Hey, I had somebody email me recently and said, when are your live broadcasts? And my answer was, we don't have those. Uh, they were under the impression that the call-in shows were live, uh, and probably hadn't listened to them yet and just saw that there were calls. Uh, it doesn't work that way. You pick up the phone, you mash some buttons. Those buttons are 866-65-THINK. Think 866-65-T-H-I-N-K. And instead of mashing buttons anymore, I guess we pretty much most of us are doing touch pads, but you get the point. And you'll get a voicemail. It'll be me. I'll be like, hey, leave me a message. And you'll leave me your message in two minutes or less. Uh, and you get a little bit more time than that, but try to keep it around the two-minute mark. If you want to get on the air, then you will be smart. And the way you be smart with this particular thing is you'll say, Jack, my question is, or Jack, my comment is, and you will make it very quick and very direct and very to the point, and then you will give details after you make the point or ask the question. And that way you'll call once instead of 15 times, get frustrated, and never leave me a message like somebody did this week. And I was like, man, I'd like to help this person, but they don't even know what they're asking, so how do I help them? You'll also call from a quiet area, and if you're using a cell phone, you'll have a couple bars on it. You won't be calling from a place where you're like, Jack, I was... And then, you know, I don't put you on the air. Just trying to help you guys out. Anyway, before I get to your calls, let's go ahead and uh, take care of our sponsors of the day today. Sponsor of the day, number one today, ready-made resources. There isn't much more than we can ask for from a company for their name than for their name to say what they do and then have them do it over and over again consistently every time. That's what ready-made resources does. They provide all the resources you need, ready-made, ready-to-go, point-click buy on their website. Great pricing, great service, and I do mean everything you could possibly need for your prepping needs. Check them out today at readymaderesources.com. Next up today, BulkAmmo.com, one of my favorite sponsors because I like ammo and I like it in bulk. By the way, finding magazines for your ARs has been difficult lately, so not only do you need ammo, you need magazines to put them in. They don't have 30-rounders sitting on their front page right now, but they do have 20-rounders. $15.99 for black thermomold um, mags. And uh, they have 53 ready to ship. I know the magazine shortage isn't as bad as it used to be, but they've got that there, and it's it's ready to go out the door right now. Um, they've got you know, your 5.56 five, ammo in bulk. Uh, they've got most things back in stock now. may not be as inexpensive as it was six months ago, but at least you can get it again. It's nice. And I've said before that the time to stock up on ammo is when it's available, not when it's not available. So check out BulkAmmo.com today. And remember, you don't need just enough ammo to survive the apocalypse or something like that. But you know what? You do need more ammo than most people think you need. Your gun without ammo is an overpriced club or maybe a... A reasonable barter implement, but it's not a gun if it doesn't have ammo. And if you, you, there's a trifecta of things, okay? With with guns, it's gun, ammunition, operator. You need those three things, and the operator has to practice his craft to be good. And we need ammo to practice our craft. So that's another thing I wanted to point out that that ammo isn't just for storing up. But it's also for shooting and training with your weapons so that if, God forbid, you need them, you're prepared to use them and use them effectively. Next up, I want to remind you guys 
about the Walking to Freedom Forum. We're uh, we're doing everything we can over there to try to make this as democratic as possible, and you can help. Get on over there and uh, vote on the naughty list. I want you guys to show up and vote. Who are the states that are at the bottom of the, the, the tier, so to speak? A huge report just came out yesterday on freedom in the 50 states. I was happy to see Texas ranked as number 14. Uh, and, you know, at the bottom of the list, you know, 49 and 50. Gee, they were California and New York. What a surprise. There were some surprises on that. We'll be talking about that on uh, on Monday. But we'd love you to get on over to walkingtofreedom.com where we're trying to get people that live in the most oppressive states to choose any other state and move there and make some new friends and, and make a statement when they leave to leave behind a goodbye letter to uh to their to their governors to their local officials and let them know. I just saw a great one on YouTube yesterday. The guy had his uh his AR with his 30 round magazine and he was talking to Governor Como in New York and he said, "You know, this this magazine maybe I maybe I took some ammo out of it, maybe I didn't. Maybe it holds 30 rounds, maybe it holds 7. You can send your goons out here to uh to inspect, but you better hurry, because let me show you something. He turned the camera around, and he already had all his shit in a moving truck, and they were already headed to another state. I want to see lots of that. I want to see these states like New Jersey, like California, like Illinois. I want to see them actually, I want to see what they do when they start losing their best people. I want to see if maybe it's a message. There's a lot of information out right now that this exodus is already happening. Walking to freedom is just a way to empower people to uh, to do it a little bit easier, to form relationships, to show up already having people that they know can be part of a community. We'd love to have you there. If you're happy with your state and you don't want to go anywhere, we need you just as bad as the people that are leaving. Uh, we need people to say, hey, I live in Tennessee and I love it here. This is why you should consider it too. And if you're considering coming to the Knoxville area and that's where I'm from, come on down. I'll show you around. That's what we want. We want citizens assisting citizens here. All right, with that, let's go ahead and uh, get into your first call of the day. Uh, and uh, again, these uh, these calls that came in last week were pretty good. Actually, these are from about a week ago. Uh, I'm usually about two weeks behind on the calls. If you listen to the way these calls are done, uh, be, as far as being able to hear the folks and uh, getting their, their point across quickly, that's how to uh, emulate a call if you'd like to be on the air. And again, if you want to be on the show like this, the number to call, 866-65-THINK. Let's take that first call now. Hi, Jack. This is Brian from Maryland. My question is about the buried wood in my woody bed that I am currently installing. I'm wondering how I can counter the nitrogen loss that my soil will see due to the rotting wood in the bed sucking up the nitrogen. I was thinking about putting a thin layer of grass clippings in between the wood and the soil or possibly putting a bunch of bluegill from the local pond in the beds to boost the nitrogen. What do you think? Thanks a lot. Okay, so let's start out with what does Seb Holzer do? Uh, I am not the Seb Holzer worshiper that Paul Wheaton is, but I do respect the man's work, and I do think if we're going to look at burying wood and growing stuff in the thing that you bury wood in, that he's probably the grandmaster of all time at doing so and done so more successfully than anybody else in what they call who culture over there, and we call woody beds over here because we're not German. And uh, what we're building is slightly different than what they, in general, than what's being built over in uh, on the Kramaterhof and, and other Sepulcher projects throughout the world. So what does he do? And the answer is nothing. Doesn't do anything. Puts the wood there, buries it. Uh, a green material like sod. If there's sod, then when they break the sod with the machine, they'll put it to the side, they'll flip it over, and it is the first thing that goes on. But that's because it's there. 
And if it's not there, he doesn't go looking for anything. So what does that tell us? That tells us that the nitrogen loss that everybody is so terrified of is not significant, it's not worth worrying about, and we really shouldn't care. And that's the basic answer is what do you do? You don't have to do anything. Now, the reality, though, of course, is that that wood is a huge carbon source that's inside that bed. And that carbon source is going to look for nitrogen and bond, and that is the process by which it will begin to break down both bacterially and fungally within the bed. And due to that, there will be some nitrogen uptake. The big thing that we have to get in our heads that I've been preaching for years with using wood chips as mulch is that nitrogen doesn't go away. It goes in, it's held, and it's slowly released. So that's more of a nitrogen trap. So the question then becomes not do we need to worry about it, but if we provide something, might we get a better result? And the answer is we probably would. And adding supplemental nitrogen to a bed, as long as we do it organic, organically is probably a good idea. I have tons and tons of big fields of weeds because we're still waiting on our hybrid uh, Raven tractor from Lowe's. By the way, guys, you got to take a look at this thing, the Raven tractor from Lowe's. It's awesome. Anyway, even Steve Harris is like, you got to buy one of those, Jack. So I did on Steve's recommendation. We'll show it to you when it shows up. So I've got all these places that really could use a little bit of uh, mowing, even with the birds out there and everything. Um, and so for right now, I just take my rogue hoe and use it like a scythe, and I chop a bunch of weeds up. And what I do is I take about a wheelbarrow of compost per 10 feet of bed. So I got one open up right now that I just dug two days ago, and I've got the wood in it already. I'll put two wheelbarrows. Actually, I actually got my big wheelbarrow from Arkansas now, so that'll probably put one wheelbarrow uh, of compost in there. And that's uh, about seven cubic feet. Uh, and, uh, so it's just basically a coating, you know, uh, of, and then I'll put the layer of green material and then I'll start returning the native soil and the fill and I'll build out my bed from there. Do I do that because I think I need to? No, I do it because I have a giant pile of compost sitting right here and it can't hurt anything. And I have a giant pile of green material. So your idea of throwing a bunch of green matter on there, not only would I say you can do it, but I'm doing it. So why not? Um, fish. <laughs> yeah. I mean, there is very little that you can think of that's a better use for a bunch of bluegill than burying them in a in a garden bed. Uh, they breed like uh, you know bluegill. I mean, even saying rabbits is just weak because they you know they will very quickly overpopulate small ponds. Uh, and you'll end up with stunted growth, and every dadgum one of them will be three and a half inches long. And, you know, taking a bunch of those out of there won't do anything to hurt that population and may very well improve the population, and that you end up with some bigger fish that you can actually use for food at some point. So if you could go down there and get a bunch of them and pitch them in there, it's certainly not going to hurt anything. But all I want people that are doing woody beds to realize, though, when you're adding compost, organic matter, supplemental nitrogen or phosphorus or potassium in any form, shape, uh, or size, to look at it the same as any other garden. To not look at it like, I have to do this because of that wood core. Because that wood core isn't the nitrogen thief that we've been led to believe by a lot of people that frankly don't know anything about hugoculture or woody bed construction. And we've heard this argument time and time again about wood chips. And uh, people keep bringing up the guy with the Back to Eden films, the Eden Garden or whatever. And that guy's nothing new. I mean, we, people have been using wood chips. I've been telling you guys to use wood chips since the day I started this show. 
And I've always said that the wood chips are not a nitrogen thief. They're not even worth worrying about. They're less of a nitrogen concern than um, the, the hugo culture because there's only a very thin layer of soil contact between the chips and the soil. So there's only so much of that can go on at any one time. And as they break down and that next layer comes down to make contact, the first layer is now providing nitrogen. So... Uh, wood and carbon as organic matter in gardens have been long over-concerning gardeners and farmers when it's not an issue. And if you look at the genesis of culture, I don't know this for a fact, but I would surmise that the first person that ever did it because they thought it would work really good probably went into a forest and saw a downed tree with a bunch of buildup on it and around it and a bunch of shit growing out of it. Now, how did that get done there? Well, that's just how nature works. Forests grow on fallen forests. When you practice woody bed construction, hugel culture, whatever you want to call it, you're just taking that principle out of the forest and into your backyard. So I would do either one or both, but I would only do it for a gain. I wouldn't do it as a compensation. Let's take another call. Hey, Jack. It's Eric. I had another uh, health question for you because I know you're not a one-trick pony. Um, can you drink too much water? And I'm not meaning in the radio station in Florida kind of way. But uh, I know one health uh, or um, exercise consideration, as they say, to drink half your body weight in ounces of water every day. And, uh, you know, doing that generally, you know, maybe just on the slight edge but underneath. And uh, I know that um, some other issues, like, say, prostate issues, will cause you to um, have to... Uh, urinate multiple different times over the course of the day or even in the evening waking you up multiple different times. But is there a time or um, different health reasons as to why maybe you should not drink uh, half your body ounces, half your body weight in ounces of water every day? I'm just uh, kind of curious as to what your thoughts are. And also, just for the record, I don't do that on the weekends. I might get a quarter or something like that, but generally during the week, I try to stay hydrated, uh, you know, again, not just for health, but also weight loss reasons and that sort of thing. Appreciate anything uh, you might know or what you might Google through on it, and uh, thanks again, Spirko Damas. Bye. I, uh, the Spirko Damas thing, the only reason I even left that on there, because I don't purport myself to be that, is that uh, one of my best friends in the world was the late an awesome Ron Hood, and he's the one that called me that. And so that always brings up fond memories of Ron when somebody says that. Uh, and uh, I don't know, I have a buddy come over tonight. Maybe we'll have a glass of sapphire gin in Ron's uh, Ron's name because uh, that was his favorite drink. So, so thanks for mentioning that. Anyway, on the question itself, can you drink too much water? The answer is yes, And then followed up by, in all of the things that I've done in my life and all of the places that I've been, including military trainings where it's like, drink water, drink water, drink, I've never seen it happen. And you probably can't drink too much water over a full day, but you might be able to drink too much water, let's say, over an hour. It's not how much, but how fast you drink that can lead to this uh, condition that starts to basically leach minerals from your body and some other things. It's too complicated for me to go into, partly because it's going to bore everybody and partly because I'm not a medical doctor and I only know so much about things like this. But I do know that this is basically what happens, that basically you start to overhydrate the body and you 
you start to actually uh, lose the ability to filter things through the kidneys and it causes some other problems. I can't remember the name of what it is, but it can happen. But you would really have to go out of your mind nuts to do it. It's most commonly seen maybe in infants under six months of age. Uh, and I wouldn't stop giving your kid formula or something because you're going to freak out about this. Think about the fact that most people never even heard of such a thing 50 years ago, and most people seem to do just fine. And the things that were killing people 50 years ago were diseases and starvation, not drinking too much water or drinking bad water. So... All I can tell you is this. I am, when it comes to working in the heat, a hydration maniac. I will walk around with uh, my uh, Camelback, which is one of the three-liter models, and uh, and if I need water, I'll drink, and I, I, you know, I'll put a lot of water into me. Your kidneys have the capacity from water to filter about 15 liters of water a day. Uh, if you want to think about what that is, um, think about a two-liter soda bottle. Uh, and think about seven of those and another one that's half full. That's, that's a lot of water. And, and very few people are going to get close to drinking that amount of water in a day. You would have to over flood the system. And generally speaking, what will happen is you get a certain sensation of fullness. Um, that was going to stop you before you do that. So it's not a big concern. Um, and I don't even try to say, well, I'm not going to drink more than X. I pretty much let my body, uh, drive my fluid consumption in the heat. And I think it's probably the best way to go. And, you know, again, it's just that it, I've been to all different types of places and all different types of training. And the only time I've ever seen anybody in trouble when it came to drinking, uh, in, in a hot environment specifically was from not drinking. Uh, when I was in the Army and Airborne School, the first thing you would do in the morning is fill your canteen, and they would make you drink the whole canteen. So that's a quart right down. And then you would fill it back up, and then you would go do PT. And be like, oh, I can't do PT. Shut up and do it or get out of Airborne School. That's the basic answer you got to that. You know, my body's oh, I can get all so much water. Slush. Shut up or go home. All right? That was, that was the black hat stance on it. You're either going to do what we say or you're out of here. And uh, then we would go do the basic part of PT before the run. And then after that, this is in the morning, by the way. It's, not, it's barely light out yet. And uh, take your canteen and drink half of water. They'd walk around and make sure you drank half of the canteen. Put it in your cargo pocket because we ran in BDU pants um, and, and the T-shirts, right? So then we would we would go run. And uh, then we, when we would get done with that. We would come back, and after that run, they'd make you. So you had two quarts of water before breakfast, mandated. And then when you went out to training, the first thing you did after breakfast is you would eat another, you would eat another, drink another quart of uh, water. And uh, that went on all day long. And I'll tell you what, I didn't see a single person in the Georgia summer. Uh, it was really spring, but it felt like summer. Uh, fall out due to a, to a hot weather ca casualty. So. My experience has been that you would have to almost intentionally do this to make this happen. And that if anything, if there is ever a problem, it's from lack of hydration. I do know that based on surveys that the majority of Americans are walking around dehydrated on a daily basis between how much caffeine we consume uh, in both forms of like soda and coffee and how little water we drink. Uh, and then if you add alcohol, a person has a few drinks every night to that, that's That just aggravates the problem. And it is probably a good idea to make sure that you're drinking at least a minimum amount of water every day and having a set period of time to do it. Those of you, like myself, that like to imbibe in the occasional adult beverage, 
one of the things you can do to really mitigate that and still enjoy yourself and not feel like you're, you know, basically setting a, I will not drink more than two or whatever it is that, you know, you is when you have a beer or a glass of wine, before you have another one, have a glass of water. Uh, that will do a lot to mitigate the effects of alcohol and slow down the consumption thereof. Uh, that's just another suggestion on that. And with that, let's go ahead and take another call. Hi, Jack. Um, my name is Steven, and I have a question specifically about what is a good starting point for um, creating a food forest. Um, and my, my situation is that I live in a large Michigan city. My parents have 18 acres a couple hours away from me, um, and I've been, been listening to your podcast and Paul Wheaton and Jeff Lawton and all, all of you guys um, and just loving it, sharing some of the information with my parents. And they have, you know, like I said, 18 acres, most of it woods. Um, they have a garden. Um, and I'm just trying to not get overwhelmed uh, with all this information and kind of realizing my lack of knowledge on this situation. So if I could just, you know, if, if you had any kind of suggestions of, like, what is a way to, to start figuring out how to do that? Um, and obviously I would be doing this a little bit from afar, but my, my parents are able-bodied and, um, and they're really interested in this stuff too. So part of it is me sharing with them um, and part of it is me getting an opportunity to spend more time with my family um, and, and do something that's really good for the environment. Um, so thank you so much for what you do and uh, I hope to get an answer. Thank you. Bye. Great. So, um, Awesome question, and the answer is it depends. So if I had you live on the air, my first question would be how you said 18 acres and mostly woods. How much open land do you have to work with? You know, when you, when you forget the garden and because you don't want to shade the garden out with a food forest and uh, you look at what's available, do you have, you know, a tenth of an acre of open land to start with? And, and that might be the kind of area size that I would say to start with or even smaller. And that's might be my first suggestion for a lot of people is I got 18 acres. Okay, great. Don't worry about 18 acres. Let's, let's go design a, a, a tenth of an acre or a twentieth of an acre, you know, half of a, half of a suburban lot in a food forest to start learning structure and functionality. And let's intensively manage that and maybe expand it out eventually to a half acre because half acre of food forest is ungodly the amount of food that it can produce for us so we need to maybe scale back now that doesn't mean if you have the space available that we don't go in there and design an acre right from the beginning but that's probably about as big as i would go initially is around an acre a half acre to an acre because one of the issues you're going to have if we go in there and we do it with an earthworks mentality so we go in and we put swales in for instance is you start looking at planting an acre and you start at the cost of planting and it looks very very expensive because it is so if we can put in a small food forest put in a swale a hundred feet long or less even and plant into that and plant downgrade from that so maybe we're going in and we're setting up and i'll talk about layers here in a second and we establish that it's quite feasible that over time we could begin propagating our own plants out of that forest, at least on some layer and some level. And that way we can begin to then build down. So if I'm going to take the earthworks approach, but I'm not necessarily saying you need to, right? But if I'm going to take the approach of putting in a swale, no matter how big or small it's going to be, I am going to start with the 
totality in mind of how big this thing could ever be as high up in the landscape as I can. And I'm going to put my swale up there, and that way I can build down and put in more swales as I go if I want it to be a very large-scale thing. But a food forest doesn't have to have swales, and it doesn't have to be huge. Um, we could build a food forest in an area, let's say, 50 feet by 50 feet. That's that's not unreasonable to do. So we're talking about a, a footprint of 2,500 square feet there. Uh, we're looking at an area that's roughly the footprint of a medium-sized uh, four-bedroom home if it's done in a one-story footprint today. Um, so you start thinking about that, and you go, well, that's really not that big at all. And now you can just start to put things into their places by understanding your layers. You're going to want some trees that are going to be your canopy trees, your tallest trees. Now, in a small area, for someone doing this in a backyard or something like that, what you would use as a canopy tree might be different than somebody that's out building a food forest on an acre. You might use a semi-dwarf tree as your canopy and use a tr true dwarf tree or simply a pruned set of trees as your sub-canopy, your lower level. The, the concept of a food far, forest isn't just like there's a right way and a wrong way. It's simply the mimicking of nature. And in a forest system, there are seven layers. There's a canopy. Uh, there's a subcanopy. There's a climbing layer. There's If you go into any forest, you'll find some sort of vines climbing into the system. Okay, there's a shrub layer, and this is generally you start getting to the edge of the forest is where you see all of these additional layers coming because there's not that much layering deep in the dark heart of the forest where it's matured and successed into maturity, right? This is in the, in the glades, which is any place there's an opening or the edges. So then we have the shrub layer. Then we have the herbaceous layer. Okay, and we have a rhizome layer, and we have a ground cover layer. So all we need to do to build a food forest is put stuff in that provides for all of those layers. And I don't know if I said rhizomial layer, so something with a root yield, like groundnut. Or sometimes the root yield can also be another yield. So if we put, in fact, groundnut would be that. Groundnut would be both a vining climber and a root yield. And... Uh, Another great example would be Jerusalem artichokes. You have basically an herbaceous plant, an herbaceous layer, that grows really tall for an herbaceous layer and almost functions like a, like a, a shrub layer at a point in time during the year where it's reached maturity, but it also has a root yield. So if we go in there, we create this clumpy structure, We're gonna, and we put things in there to produce food, we're going to end up with a food forest. So I would say that your first real step is to scale the first phase of the project based on the totality of the goal. If you want to take an acre of land out there, which, you know, out of 18 acres, that's, that's a pretty small portion of the whole, and you want to turn that into food forest, and you have a clean slate to start with, i.e. the land is not, you have at least an acre that's not forested right now, then I would find the highest point on that acre, and I would make the longest swale I could as high up in the landscape as I could, And I would go ahead and I would full-scale swale it. I would do a Jeff Lawton, you know, two meters wide, one meter deep, big mainframe swale. If the land is shaped a little bit odd, though, and what I mean by that is sometimes you get to the highest point on the land that you can put a swale in, and it ends up being a very short swale because of the way the contour is. So if you can imagine a rectangular acre, That's about twice as long as it is wide. It's a strip, but it's not an arrow strip. And if this is exactly a description of my pasture to my west, if the highest point on the on that piece of land 
is uh, uh, the northwest corner, which mine is, it's conceivable that that contour might make a very short swale and just kind of make a, like a little, almost like a little check mark in the, in the side of the, the pasture. You may then have to put one there and go ahead and go downgrade a little bit and find a place where you can get more of a mainframe swale in. You'll have to think about things, though. Do I want to bring vehicles in and out? In my case, that particular area this is exactly one of my concerns. It's one of the few places I can get a full-size vehicle to any part of the property without cutting other trees down and things like that. So I'll have to, when my, I get to that first larger swale, I'll have to actually end the swale, leave a path, and then continue the swale, and basically, instead of trying to go all the way across, basically leave a land bridge, and then let the next swale collect that water uh, shed event and offset another land bridge to make two big mainframe swells over that pasture, which is my plan as of right now. And that's the easier way to me than putting in pipes and trying to build a bridge over a swale. Just, you know, just end the swale and start it again. You're only going to, if you leave a, a 10 foot gap, you're only going to lose 10 feet of catchment. And we can do some things to kind of even divert that and maybe do a little bit of a, of a fill on both sides of it and kind of divert that into the swales anyway and minimize the erosion there. So I know I'm kind of babbling about my own project now, but it's just kind of to put this in context for you. If you want that big system, I would start with that largest swale you can create high in the landscape, and I would plant my food forest in a strip along that swale. And then over time, we can just chase it downhill. When we get far enough down that we're losing the hydration effect of the swale, we just put another one in, and we keep going. And we can advance a forest over a few years, you know, across a half an acre to an acre that way. That's exactly what I'm going to do here. But I wouldn't, if that's bigger than what you want to do, I wouldn't let that hold you back. You can go in, like I said, and take a footprint of a house or two and just put one basically at the edge of the backyard. And there's nothing wrong with that, and it'll work just fine. And many people are building those types of systems in suburban backyards. And it can be done a lot with pruning. We can go in and take a lot of trees that normally would get up to be 25, 30-foot trees, and because we want diversity and multi-species, and we don't want one big tree to just shade out the whole yard, we'll start with a semi-dwarfing rootstock. We'll put that in. We'll prune that tree. We'll hold it at 10 feet high. And our canopy is going to be freaking 10 feet high because we've decided that. And we can train that tree and prune that tree and keep that tree at that height. And then we're going to come in with our with another tree. And might even not go to true dwarf. We might just go to another semi-dwarf that's just naturally a little bit smaller and prune that down into an eight-foot range. And then we'll start fitting in, you know, gooseberries and currants in the shady spots uh, and things like that. And eventually you end up with a food forest in a backyard. So... The first step is decide how big is this thing going to be, and it probably ain't going to be 18 acres for a couple reasons. One, it would be, I'd love you to do it. I, I would. I mean, I would come up there and visit and hang out, and I think it would be awesome to see an 18-acre food forest. But unless you're planning on doing it as a as a living, if you're turning it into a farm like Mark Shepard's place, which is like 101 acres, it's probably more expense than you can warrant. And number two, it's mostly wooded. And what we really don't want to be doing with building these systems is going into existing beautiful forest and cutting it down so that it can be replaced. Now, let's say you want an acre food forest. You have your parents' place. They have their little area carved out for like a yard, and then it's all forest. 
and you're like, I don't have an acre and I want an acre, would I consider cutting an acre of forest to put in an acre of food forest? The answer is absolutely. And I would also consider maybe cutting two acres and putting in, instead of a food forest, food forest clumps, and if you have the soil conditions for it, two or three ponds or dams, maybe more. Even small ones, tenth of an acre pond here, tenth of an acre pond here, swales filling out. I mean, if you want to go to that layer, I wouldn't hesitate to cut a couple acres. I bring equipment in and get it done, get it done fast. And a lot of that material that you cut then could be basically used to create hugel beds or wood core beds with the swales and basically make hugel swales. Uh, which would even accelerate the process and further the process of hydration further. And the reason I wouldn't hesitate to do it is, if, especially if you put water features in dams and, and things like that, you'll bring in more wildlife than you'll lose by cutting that piece. Now, if I only had three acres, would I cut it all down? No, I'd probably look for a different piece of land. But if I have 18 and you're going to cut a couple, three acres... I would do it, but only if I know this is where I'm going with the whole thing. And I would spend the money and effort up front to put the mainframe earthworks in throughout the entire piece as soon as it's cut. And I would go back and begin my planning and my expansion from there. So it's all depending on scale. But I will tell you that an acre is probably more than enough. And I would probably, if it was all forested and I was going to cut anything, I'd probably limit it to that and begin my project there. I might even start out with a half of an acre or less. I mean, it all depends on how big you want this thing to be in the end. So the best advice I can give you in the current description of the situation, uh, I would go look up uh, my uh, seven layers podcasts, a couple different ones, and listen to anything. Just put seven layers uh, in the search box at the Survival Podcast and, uh, and get a good understanding of layers if you don't already have it. Let's take another one. Hey, Jack. This is Matt, Northeast Oklahoma first-time caller I have a question I would like to know what kind of plant preferably a beneficial would survive best with an inordinate amount of guinea poop um, quite a bit of geese ducks and chicken for that matter uh, to expand on that a little bit I have a redbud tree out the backyard uh, probably my zone one there's about a foot of slope in about 20 foot of span um, my intention is to uh, terrace that with uh, some native rock bottom, backfill with a lot of um, woody mulch, and have some walkways through there. The guineas roost in the tree, and uh, I had a lot of chickens and ducks and geese that, that hang out there under the sh shade of the summer, but right now it's just, I, I can't even get Bermuda grass to grow there. Anyways, appreciate everything you do. Bye. Okay, so what we have there is an area with too much of what you would call a hot manure. Most manures, cow manure, chicken manure, guinea manure, almost any bird, uh, the manure is what you would call hot, very, very high in nitrogen. It needs to bond with carbon and break down before we put it on plants because it will just pretty much burn plants. Over-excessive nitrogen will burn roots, burn plants. Uh, if you, when you first start to get there, but it's not enough to kill the plant outright, you'll actually start to see the yellow and brown and begin to burn. It's a, like a chemical burning process that occurs. So your question is, what can I chemically burn that will still grow? And the answer is, I don't know anything that you can chemically burn that will still grow, uh, specifically that would be beneficial that you'd want around. And if you found something that would grow there, uh, it'd be likely to be something that could become quite invasive. So, 
the answer to what you can grow there is probably nothing. So that means what we have to do is we have to take the problem and turn it into a solution. Now, I don't own guineas, and uh, I don't know that I will. I'm still up in the air on whether or not I have room for guineas here with everything else that I'm doing. But in my experience, guineas don't sit in a tree all day. They go all over the place and eat ticks and bugs and things like that and patrol the ground and scream and yell when somebody that they don't know shows up and do all the great things that guineas are known for doing. And then we'll notice that they're all over the place all day long and there's no, there's not little dead spots everywhere they go. It's only in this one place of high concentration. So that tells us that the manure itself isn't bad. It's the concentration of the manure that's bad and specifically that it's not being able to bond with a carbon source. See where I'm going? So what I would do is the area underneath this roosting tree, I would just accept that this is my giant on-site composting area where I don't have to do hardly any work at all and the birds will do all the work for me. But what I don't want is all of this successive high nitrogen beginning to leach into the surrounding area and the area, the dead zone, we'll call it. I don't want that growing. I want it contained and confined. So I would go in there and I would just go in there with about, I'd say, six inches or more of wood chips or straw. And I would just mulch that area. And it's just going to be a mulched area. And about once every three to six months, I would go in there and I would just rake up that layer And I would take it away somewhere where I can compost it with other green material. And a lot of it will already be probably with all the nitrogen contributed by the guineas and the other birds and fowl that go there during the day for the shade rest uh, will probably largely compost itself. But if we mix that now with, uh, let's say, leaves and grass clippings, more greens and browns, and mix that into a, a regular compost pile, uh, we're going to get really high-quality compost that we can then go take this problem and make a solution. And even if, and you might be able to make more compost than you even need or want to use. And have you priced a bag of compost? And you have 100% real organic compost with no Amelia pentathate or any of these 2,4-D or any of these other freaking uh, herbicides in it. So that might be pretty valuable to friends and neighbors and countrymen. So you might even have a little bit of a barter implement there, or if you're just a nice guy, stuff you give away. Or And if you do that, I'd probably say, well, you want some, come get it yourself. Um, but you have a great resource now. And the big thing to do is to, again, to, to totally mulch in that area, very, very deep, high-absorbent, carbon-based uh, mulching, so that that nitrogen from the excrement immediately begins a bonding and a lockup process so that it doesn't leach out, because what you've got is a dead zone there. And then the reality is it's a very shaded area. A big, wide-spreading red bud is only going to have so many things that can grow under there anyway. So that's the step one. Can we get to a point where maybe we can grow some things? Probably. If we do that well, we can then probably out on the circumference, the outer edges, because guineas when they roost, they're generally not out on the freaking wide, complete edge out at the drip line because it's all windy and moves around out there. They generally get in more toward the core of the tree. So if we mulch just outside the drip line and we start to do this after, I would say, maybe one annual, so you're going to do this for a year. And in that year, you're going to probably pull the material out of there two to three times. By the time you come back in with next year, 
You can probably start planting things that are going to be tolerant of the shade. I don't know. I don't remember if you said what zone you're in, but if you're up north, gooseberries and currants, or if you're, you know, raspberry, blackberries, raspberries, and things like that, the birds are going to go and kind of take some of that. But that's that's okay. Um, but if you then you can probably begin to plant around there. But you've got to do some remediation first. You've got to bond up that that high hot nitrogen, and you've got to start holding it. And that's probably the only way you're going to solve this problem and again it's by turning it into a solution let the birds do all the composting for you um, they'll probably get in there and scratch and dig around a lot too because it'll start attracting bugs and insects and and they'll eat those and they'll poop more and then there's more nitrogen to go with the carbon and pretty soon you may get to a point where you know if the ratios come out right and you kind of play with it a little bit about how thick that bed is that when you do pull it out of there, you're probably 80% to compost already, and you just let it sit somewhere to finish cooking, and you don't have to do anything at all. It's highly possible that that might work out that way. Good call. I'm sorry I don't have a plant that can just tolerate the situation the way that it is for you. If somebody knows of one, tell me. I just don't think it's going to work. If it's that bad that it's burned off even Bermuda grass, it's uh, it's it's pretty uh, pretty hot situation. Let's take another call. Hey, Jack, this is Richard from Alaska. Just had a quick question. We're looking at buying a new property. Something I've never run into before is the issue of water rights, and I had never understood what that really was until I had to look into it. Some of these properties uh, have about between three and five acres, sometimes more, but some only have a third of an acre of water rights, and I was wondering exactly how that all worked, if you could go about petitioning the local zoning board, et cetera, whatever government agencies in, in charge of that for larger water rights and exactly how well that is enforced and what you can really do to get around that. I realize that a third of an acre is probably sufficient for the needs that I have now and obviously in a bad situation it wouldn't really matter what government agency uh, has to say. But just your thoughts on that and what you kind of need to look out for when you're buying a new property regarding water rights. Thanks. Love what you do. Bye. Ah, water rights. One more thing for government to control. Um, for all of the freedoms and liberties in the great state of Alaska, that's one that there's a little bit of limitations on. And um, it's it's an area that you got to kind of work with what you got. Um, and some points, when you're looking for a piece of property, you, you often get to a point where you say, I, this doesn't have everything I want, but it's got most of what I want and I can make it work. And that's part of what you have to look at because what I would advise you to do is assume that whatever the property comes with is as much as you're going to get. It doesn't mean you can't get more. There's a process to apply for it and it's not very expensive. It's a few hundred bucks. And, uh, you could, you can, you know, talk to an attorney that handles these issues and ask them what the feasibility is, what's required, you know, because it, it may be very, very different uh, with the state and, and DNR, uh, whether you want to start pumping water out of a stream to irrigate a field, they might have one level of, you know, we don't know about this type of a response. Uh, whereas if you want to put a pond in, and you don't want to pump water out. You just want to put a pond in and have a pond there. 
they may see that as a water conservation thing. I don't know. I know in Colorado they would. They'd be like, oh, no, you can't do that. God forbid we had a pond here. This would exasperate the water problem. Well, how? It would. See, the water would be here instead of down in the stream where it runs into our dam. But but the water would be here, so there would be water here. And that I don't understand. See, that's the bureaucrat you're dealing with. So you got to know what is the nature of the Alaskan bureaucrat. Is it a Colorado bureaucrat, an Oregon-style bureaucrat, which are very similar but different? Or is it a, you know, a totally different animal up there? And what is typically the response to the initial request? So that would be the first place I'd look. Um, most of the property you're looking at, though, is probably pretty wooded and things like that. Unless you want to clear it and do some major irrigation, which probably you don't, it may not be an issue. It may simply be an issue if you want to put ponds in. That may be your big concern. I don't know whether that's your concern or not. It, when you look at a third of an acre of water rights, there's a lot of water, especially coastal Alaska, which is probably in the kind of the area that you're in. In the interior, you probably, you know, it wouldn't even matter. They wouldn't know what you were doing. Um, so you got lots of rainfall to work with. Um, you got snow cover for a large part of the year. Um, so it may not be an issue, but the real issue for anybody with this question is what do you want to do with the property? And does the lack of those rights impede the ability to do that? Because we're going to make choices and we're going to make compromises in any home or land purchase. Perfect example here. There's rocks in the ground here, way more than I wanted, but everything else was so perfect and we had looked for so long. Okay, I'll deal with the fact that you just can't go throwing ponds even though I can do whatever I want water rights wise. And maybe I can finagle a couple things here and there. That was a compromise. So you live in Alaska, you have this water rights issue. I would make fully informed decisions with the, with the understanding that you may have to compromise at some point. Now, there's a lot of people out there going, Jack, you're a libertarian. You should be talking about how terrible this thing is and how if you own land, you should own the rain that falls on your land. I, 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 I know. I feel that way completely. That's exactly what I want for everybody. I think that if I lived in Colorado and set up a couple of rain barrels and some bureaucrat ever made a noise about it, I might pump him in the face one time real good and bloody his nose for him and pay the fine for the water and pump him in the nose because that's what he needs. You know, I mean, really, you're going to tell me I can't catch the water off my roof in a bucket? I mean, seriously? And to be fair to the bureaucrats in Colorado, there's never been a case of that. There has never been a case of somebody being, at least as far as I know, attacked for catching water in a couple barrels or buckets or things like that. It's when they start impounding dams and things like that. So that's kind of stage one of the stage two. How can we cheat the system? So in other words, if I have water rights to a third of an acre and that third of an acre happens to sit in a low area, can I put a pond there? The answer might be yes and it might be no. It depends. Here's why. The water that's going to eventually end up in that area will come from a catchment upgrade, so I'm now impounding water that didn't fall on that piece of land. You see how that works? So you got to know that. Conversely, if I have water rights to a third of an acre and I put in a dam that catches that water that might extend to an area I don't have water rights, but I'm impounding the water off my own catchment that I have rights to, how does that? So these are, these are questions for an attorney. All right, so if you want to put dams in, those are the kinds of questions that you need to ask. All right, now, how do we cheat the system completely? We don't have ponds, we don't have dams, and we don't have any quote-unquote impoundment of the water. 
we go in with a project, if we wanted to grow lots of stuff and make most use of the water in the landscape possible, and we put in erosion control means, which the water people should love. Nobody wants erosion. And what method of erosion control would Jack Spierko use to hold water in the landscape right under the nose of a bureaucrat that doesn't understand it? The swale. Yes, I'd put swales in. Uh, I'd put swales in, and if the bureaucrat came out and looked at him and said, is this an impoundment? You go, nope. Specifically designed not to impound. And I go, what do you mean? It's not compacted. It's, it doesn't hold water. When it rains, the water falls in here and just seeps through. Well, why'd you do it? Erosion control. Oh, I see. Done. They don't understand swales. They don't know how they work. They don't know what the hell a swale is. If you tell them it's a swale, they go, I don't understand what a swale is. It's an erosion ditch. Prevents erosion. Does it impound water? No. No. Now, you and I know what it really does. Puts the water into the ground. And then the water seeps through the ground. But see, it's still not impounded. It's still not impounded. And gee, you know what can happen if you do that right? The last couple swales in your property could become ponds. They just kind of fill up with water. But they're still not impounded. Because after a season or two, they be the ground becomes so hydrated that any hole anywhere just kind of fills up. I mean, you could do some things like you could put the swales upgrade and you go downgrade the, like a season into it when the ground gets really, really hydrated. And you take like a backhoe and you just take the bucket and you start mashing the ground down. You make basically a big depression and it just fills up with water. I don't know how. It's a natural pond. Oh, gee, now we have to preserve it. Oh, it was this wetland when we moved in and it just started filling up. Well, there's no dam. Right? There's no, no disturbed earth. All you've done is taken a natural depression and hydrated the land and kind of pushed it down a little bit. Throw a pig in there. I mean, probably not. I don't know how you guys do with pigs in Alaska, but, you know, I mean, mooses showed up and started rolling around in it, sir. I don't know. I'm, I figured I should protect it, don't you? It's natural. Oh, yeah, yeah, you got to protect that. In fact, we don't want that to ever go away. Okay. See, I mean, there's there's always ways to finagle things, but on the question of actual usage, it's going to come down to what do you want the property to do? Does the restriction impede that? If so, you need a different property. If you're banking on getting greater rights to the water, you need to consult with a professional that does it for a living, that obtains it for other people, that can give you an honest professional assessment, and I would still assume you're not getting more. Because once you've bought the property, you're kind of stuck if they say no. Let's take another one. Hey, Jack. This is Rob in San Diego. Uh, I got a question about chickens. Hopefully, you can help me out. Um, I'm kind of just planning ahead um, for the, you know the possibility of something going wrong, and um, I plan on having a full flock, you know, with roosters and stuff. But I have some neighbors um, who've been really nice. I just moved in this new area, and they've been hooking me up with eggs, but they don't have any roosters. Um, so I'm, I'm kind of looking for uh, some timelines. Basically, if something happens and uh, these people need to bring their chickens over to my place, basically to have my roosters service their hens, um, how long will the, the hens lay eggs that are fertile that they can then, you know, incubate or, or try to get them to brew, whatever they try to do to try to increase their flock? Um, just looking for, like, a timeline. You know, once, once the chickens... I uh, have made it. How long can they go in between, I guess, uh, freshening? Thanks a lot, man. Love the show. Uh, love all the information you're putting out. Really appreciate it. Thanks a lot. 
The general answer is two to four weeks. Uh, once bred, a hen will generally produce fertile eggs if she's been fully inseminated and, uh, and bred well for between two to four weeks. And it has been a little longer on occasion, but generally that's the cap. Most people that are, you know, banking on getting fertile eggs go with the two to three week, uh, side of things. Now the plan of I'll bring my rooster over and he'll take care of my neighbor's hens, um, It would probably be a much better plan that if they got to the point where they needed fertile reproductive eggs in that flock for you to take a young rooster that came up out of your birds from the year and barter the bird over to them with that, with, with the, you know, give it to them as a goodwill gesture, give it to them in return for a sack of feed or whatever. But if you get to a point where they start thinking, we really need to worry about this, it's better that they have their own rooster that stays with their flock. Um, it's also something that they need to think about long term is what are the, what is the viability of those hens going to be by the time they, so in other words, there's a point where hens stop laying. And if they're not laying at all, they're certainly not going to be laying fertile eggs. So if they have a flock that's aging, they need to be thinking about bringing new blood in once in a while uh, to keep the fertility available. So, I mean, my approach would be to have a plan to get those folks their own rooster uh, quickly in that scenario, which ain't that hard to do. Uh, especially if you're producing fertile eggs and bringing up some broilers and things like that every year, just simply give them a rooster when they need one. Um, you could do it as a stopgap measure in between. And again, the, the, uh, the, the answer is in general, um, you're looking at a two to four week window after fertilization when you're going to get fertile eggs. Well, let's take another call. Hi, Jack. This is Paul from Australia. I have another question. Um, I've, I've, um, I'm just in the process of uh, trying to set up some irrigation on my off-grid property. Um, I've just, just finished uh, putting a kangaroo fence around the perimeter of where I'm, where I'm wanting to use, and I'm wanting to set up some irrigation. I've got two dams, and um, I'm trying to research what's the best way of setting up the irrigation. Um, I w- I'm, I've, I've got the ability to do a gravity feed from the dams, but I'm, I'm looking at, you know, do I, do I get a big... Uh, uh, ra- like a water tank, have it going into the water tank, then have an automated system, like a mechanical automated system, going across the across the areas that I'm wanting to water. Um, I, I need some kind of automated system, and I'm looking and trying to work out what's the best thing to do. So, um, really, just looking for any advice on irrigation systems um, for a sort of sort of small sort of homestead. It's about about an acre and a half, two acres that I'm watering. So. Uh, Anything you anything you know about that, or any anybody on the council, or anything like that, be um, interested to find out. So uh, yeah, thanks. Um, love the show. Keep up the right work. Cheers, bye. Well, when you're looking at watering one to two acres, you're probably not going to do it with tanks, unless you're solely using the tanks and a cycling to provide pressure. Here's what I mean. You could conceivably put, let's say, a 2,000-gallon tank up on a water tower to provide pressure, and then from your dams have a, a, a relatively low-draw pump that takes, let's say, two days to fill that that tank. And then you could irrigate, let's say, every third day using the pressure from that tank. And 2,500 gallons is only going to do so much irrigation even. Uh, across one to two acres, depending on what you're talking about. 
Are we talking about, and, and Paul, if you can call back with more details, I'll try to do a follow-up on this one for you. Are we talking about one to two acres of row crops where we're talking about, um, you know, putting an annual planting of, of mixed grains and corn and vegetables every year? Or are we talking about one to two acres of an established perennial system more along the lines of a food forest? Because we need a lot less irrigation for the second one than the first one. Uh, because if we get into one or two acres of gardening, we're now into farming, and the whole we're going to mulch everything, go in and you know manage everything intensively, and all goes out the window. You're too, you know, if we're one or two people, you're way too large at that point to be able to manage it like a garden. Now we got to manage it like a farm. That means a lot more evaporation issues. That means we can only do so many things, and 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 now we've got to be really smart. And either way, I want you to think about when you start talking about irrigating an acre or more, the same way you think about sizing a solar system for your home, okay? And what I mean by that is the very first thing we do before we buy a solar panel and an inverter and batteries is let's improve the efficiency of the home so that whatever alternative energy that we bring in will have its maximum effectiveness. So we're looking at putting in maybe drip irrigation, or soaker hose irrigation systems, something like that. We're looking at putting in earthworks. If we're going to do um, a food forest type perennial system, then we're going to go in there and swale that. Uh, we're going to try to maybe tie into some of your existing dams with that and help keep them full using the swales to backflow to the dams and the dams backflowing to the swales when they exceed their capacity. If that's not possible because of the way the initial dams are constructed, we might be putting in a third dam or a fourth dam in conjunction with these swales, even if it's a relatively small dam. A small dam, something in a neighborhood of a 20th of an acre that's fairly deep, holds a shitload of water, more than most people realize. So we're going to look at going into a system now where we can look at preparing the bones of the land to be more efficient. If we're going to do it with row cropping, then we're probably looking at key line plowing. So now we're going to map the contours, and instead of putting in swales, when we plow the land for row crops, we're going to put the, the, the plow strokes in just barely off contour. They follow contour and fall off and follow contour and fall off and do that, and that, that's going to actually help a lot with whatever irrigation that we do. So the, the answer is that's the basics of what I can give you, Paul, and if you'll call back and be a little bit more specific uh, I'll give you my answers, and maybe we'll bring someone like Ben Falcon on this this one, or maybe get Paul Wheaton's opinion, or maybe we'll get all three of us. But for any of us to give you um, more than I just did, we're going to have to know more about what you're going to try to grow, what's the timeline of your project, how large your existing dams are in, what's your rainfall, what's the soil type. If you can, and you know, what is the what is the, the the final vision? If I gave you a magic wand right now and said, "Make your two acres grow the things you want," and all you have to do is go abracadabra, boom, what would be there? And how much work do you want to do once that's done? You give us that, and we'll see what we can do about giving you a more uh, in-depth answer on this very good question. Thanks for calling all the way from Australia. Let's take another call. Hey, Jack, it's Chris in Glendale, Arizona. Uh, I go by Milk Mood on the forums, and I just had a, I just watched a documentary on Ayn Rand and uh, the the prophecy of Atlas Shrugged, and I've also watched uh, Atlas Shrugged, and I'm wondering where where you stand on um, her philosophies and her beliefs, and as far as society and politics and culture, and um, how you apply those beliefs into your daily survival skills. That's all I have. Thank you.
Um, I'm about to make a lot of people in the audience who have never heard me say this before go, wow, I didn't know that. I have no idea because I've never read Atlas Shrugged. And other than cursory descriptions and discussions with other people about the concept of things like Galt's Gulch and things like that, uh, I, I have no idea really. I, I know the synopsis of the story and that's all. And I probably have better things to do with my time than work my way through that enormous book. Because uh, I don't think it will change the way that I think at all. And I think there will be areas where I'm in large agreement and areas where I'm completely in disagreement. And I don't really care. Um, and, uh, Rand's work is what's called object, uh, objectivist. And um, it's not libertarian. It has a lot of libertarian tenets and themes. But it really diverges when you get into the non-aggression principle. As a libertarian, I believe in the non-aggression principle. And I don't think just because one country thinks they can do things better than another country that we should go over there dropping bombs on them and killing their freaking people. I believe that the only case for war or force is in opposition to force that you did not instigate. In other words, if you break into my house, I will shoot your ass dead if I think myself or my family is in danger. And you've done a reasonable job of, of convincing me of that. The, the, the second you came into my property without being asked to do so, and you've you know gone through enough effort to get past the security that's in place to get that done. Um, so it's not that I'm a pacifist. I am for non-aggression. And my understanding of objectivism is that it's not so much the case. And that right there just divulges from me. Uh, because my entire... See, so... When we get, hear a lot of crap in the libertarian community about how the com companies would control everything and all, um, it's inconsistent with libertarian concepts because it's no more appropriate for a libertarian for a company to exert force than it is for a government to exert force. So a company would have to make a case to you as to why to do business with them. They can't exert force against you or a competitor. So all the fears of monopoly get mitigated a lot. If you want more on my thoughts of libertarianism, I did a show uh, this week on Tuesday. And if you listen to that, you'll understand a lot more about how that philosophy plays into my life. But how does it play into survival skills? Other than a basic working understanding of the mentality of, of other human beings and the free market that exists in spite of every attempt to kill it, it doesn't. I mean, when it comes to how do you grow food or how do you kill an animal so that you can eat it, how do you, you know, go out into the woods and, 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 and harvest, uh, whether it's plant or animal, um, how do you shoot a gun straight? I mean, everything you would think of as a skill, um, it really doesn't matter because I could show you people that are bush hippie socialists that are very good at those skills too. Um, they might have a different reason for requiring them, but it really doesn't make a difference when it comes down to the skill set. Uh, I think that there is a big misconception out there that every, every libertarian on the planet is a huge fan of Rand and a huge fan of Atlas Shrugged and that's like their Bible. I've never even read the damn thing and, and I've thought about doing it a couple times. Somebody even sent me the audio link. I haven't even seen the movies and they're on net, the ones on net, first one anyways on Netflix. And I was actually just the other night going, maybe I should, eh, the hell with this. I don't really care. I, I know some people out there just can't believe that, but, um, my philosophy is this. I'm not looking for anything to be my Bible. I'm really not. I'm not looking for anything to tell me how to live. Uh, that's something I'll figure out for myself as I go along. And I believe that when we're in tune with reality, that we're led to answers based on our own lives and what we're looking for. 
So I just haven't been led, so to speak, to read Ayn Rand's book. I don't really care. Um, maybe someday I will. Maybe someday I won't. Um, but again, I'm not an anarchist in practice. I'm an anarchist in, in idealism. So my ideal society would be an anarchist society, uh, a state, a completely and totally stateless society. I just think we have a long way to go as, as human beings before that's feasible. And I believe that libertarianism is the highway that leads in that direction. Um, so my stance is generally just about anything government's trying to do today that they didn't do a year ago is wrong. Uh, that, that's pretty much the way I feel about it. And uh, I want to see government with less power and smaller, not bigger, with more power. Uh, and I believe that the libertarian path is the only one that can do that for us right now. And I think that if you're a Republican that believes your party when they tell you that, you haven't paid attention. You just haven't paid attention. You're being lied to. In the words of George Carlin, it's all bullshit and it's bad for you. It, it really is. Um, to believe the Republican Party when they tell you they're for smaller, less intrusive government, uh, when they've never taken a step in that direction for a nanosecond, um, is it, just preposterous. And to believe a Democrat that says it is even more ridiculous because they don't even claim that that's what they want. They want bigger government. You have a two-party system right now that wants nothing but more power. They just want different powers. Governments are always that way. They always grow. They always bloat. They always become reckless and dangerous and damaging. Uh, they always use force. So my biggest thing that I take out of the whole that whole angle, that whole libertarian angle, is that the application of force is wrong. That we should not apply force to anyone unless we're doing it in defense. And uh, that basically, does that mean I'm anti-war? No, it doesn't, and it does. Here's, here's how that works, right? Anti-war is just a blanket statement. All war is wrong, and all war should never happen, and we, I will not participate in any war. What if somebody's coming to take your house away? Right? What if an invading nation has decided that they're going to just come here and take everything? Well, that's different. Well, no, it's not. It's still a war. So when you look at anti-war, it's, it's not whether or not you're pro Anybody that says they're pro-war is a retard. I'm sorry. And I mean no offense to the people that have mental impairments that, that you know get that label. Uh, but, but seriously, I mean, if you are a, a, a supposedly sane-minded person and goes, I'm not anti-war, well, that means you're pro-war and you're a retard. You have to be a retard to want something that's going to result in the deaths of innocent people. And I mean beyond the soldiers. Um, it, it, it's just, it, it is completely and totally unacceptable. And we have had both just and unjust wars in the history of mankind. And things are never as black and white as, as we think they are. And I never blame the soldier for the politician's war. And a lot of people in the libertarian world and the anti-war world do. And I think you're a fool when you do that. You're just as foolish as the person that says, well, I'm not anti-war, I'm pro-war. What the hell is wrong with the person? And no, more, no person is more opposed to war than a soldier. That's something that we need to remember as well. It's not an easy area to go into. Um, and to me, the best that we can do And the biggest impact that we can have is to, as libertarians anyway, those of you that share that philosophy with me, is to live our lives individually that way as best we can. 
And to be fair, that's what mo most anarchists do as well. Uh, they're not out trying to change the political system. They're just living as anarchists within, you know, inside the state, uh, basically creating their own internal stateless societies and ignoring most of the things that other people pay attention to. On a lot of levels, that's how I as a libertarian live. Um, here's a little piece of advice. There's a piece of advice that I, when I spoke recently uh, at the Liberty Forum in New Hampshire, I said, how many people like this one? And it's, it, it's better to ask for forgiveness than permission. And most people liked it. I said, stop doing that. Forgiveness implies that you've done something wrong. Take the action and then defend it. Don't apologize for it. And that's how I try to live my life. Whatever I think needs to be done in my life, if I can do it, I will. And if somebody has a problem with it, then I'll defend the action. And that doesn't mean that I'm going to do something stupid that's going to result in making me a felon, but it also means I won't back down over a fight over the use of my property or something such as that. So hopefully that makes sense. Uh, I don't know if it was really the spirit of the question being asked, but it's the only answer I had given the grounds that I haven't read it and probably won't. Hey, Jack, this is uh, Joe from Kansas. I got a question for you regarding, like, computers. Pretty much Apple or Microsoft, are you a Mac guy or a PC guy? I've uh, always been working with PCs and really seems like with the amount of money you can spend on the PC, I actually have to say that the quality and the, like, the length of it being functional has really gone down in, like, the last five years. So I'm really thinking to go Apple. I guess I was just wondering what you use, since obviously you're editing a lot and using uh, your computer frequently for your livelihood. Um, thanks, thanks so much for the show, and uh, if you answer, I look forward to hearing it. Take care. Uh, the answer is, uh, if you get outside of tablets and phones, I'm a PC guy, and I probably will be for a long time to come, even though I'll tell you that I think that Apple makes a better product. Here's why. I have thousands of dollars worth of software that I use and that I already know how to use. If I were to switch over to a Mac, I would have to either run Windows emulation software, which kind of just defeats the entire purpose in the first place, uh, and doesn't really do anything for me except make me spend more money to buy new equipment. Uh, or I would have to then find uh, the comparable software in the Mac world Uh, and not only pay for it, but I would also have to relearn uh, what I already know about video editing, audio editing, and things like that. And I'm sure I could. And one day maybe I'll just go out and buy a MacBook and play around with it and, and get that done. And once I know, maybe I'll switch over. If I didn't do all of that, if I was a normal, everyday person who the only thing I did with my computer is mostly watch YouTube videos, mess around with social media, blog, uh, and, uh, and things like that, and check emails, I would probably not own a PC. I probably not own a single dadgone one of them. But when I start looking at replacing, you know, a $300 program like Camtasia, a $900 program like Sony Vegas, and I start doing the math on that and I go, it's not just a more expensive machine. 
It's a complete change of all of the things that I do. And I think this is what keeps a lot of businesses based in the PC world because they have systems in place that run on PC, because they have a, a, a group of employees that are familiar with the programs that they're using. Uh, they want to stick with that. And I think in a lot of cases, those companies actually are uh, more able to, and to move with that flexibility than I am. There's plenty of things that will let them do it uh, with very little retraining. But I would think that if I had to learn to use, I don't know what it says, GarageBand, I think is the basic one, but there's a, there's a higher-end um, uh, editing software that's comparable to Sony Vegas uh, that runs on Macs. I, I think it would actually take me quite a bit of time to learn everything I need to know to do what I do now. But basically, the big thing would be to be as fast as I am now. Uh, when it comes to producing one of these shows, the, the time is the research. With a call-in show, it's the screening, uh, and it's the production. Uh, the, when I mean the production, the recording. The post-recording production, I can do with my eyes closed answering questions from my all of it at the same time. I can do four different things, and I can whip it out in a matter of moments. And that's something that it's hard to give up when you have that. But when it comes down to who builds a better product, Macs are more reliable, more robust, more powerful, and they have a longer lifetime. Uh, if you were buying a, a machine today, either a desktop or a notebook, and you were going to use it the way that 99% of people use it, and you say, which one should I buy? I'd tell you to buy a Mac if you can afford the differential in price. One thing really going for the PC, though, is the price. Um, the, the, show, the one that I used to produce shows is a desktop model. It is just oozing horsepower. I mean, just oozing horsepower. It, what this machine does is unbelievable, even though it's about two years old now, and I think I got it as a rebuild at CompUSA for like 350 bucks. So there is, that's, I mean, if you need multiple machines and you're dedicating machines to do certain things, man, it's, uh, it's, it's tough to start shelling out thousands when you could be shelling out hundreds. And that's largely in part to two totally different marketing strategies. Apple said, we build our stuff our way and we're the only ones that can build it. You want to write software for it, go nuts, but no one can produce an Apple machine except Apple, right? PC and Windows basically said, okay, you know, Microsoft Windows said, anybody anywhere can build something to run our stuff. They basically reverse engineered the chip, <laughs> produced it as a new chip, and said, go nuts. Anybody who wants to do it can do it. And, and that has empowered a lot more people to be part of the Microsoft success story than just people that work for Microsoft directly or contract for them. There are people who have become billionaires because they started making Windows machines and they didn't have to pay any tribute to Microsoft other than there's a cost for the OS, the operating system, uh, like Michael Dell. Right? There are people who wrote one little program that did something really unique and really special that was designed to run on PCs that became millionaires. So... There is this ability for anybody to play in the PC world, which has kept the cost down, because when it comes to getting the equipment, you can get it from anywhere, and anybody can make it. An economy of scale has driven those costs down, where if you only have one producer of something, you're going to charge more, one, because you can, but two, because you're going to have to. So that's that's the other consideration to think about there. Um, I have to say that I'm running Windows 7 
uh, on the majority of my machines, and I love it. it. I've had no real problems with it. I've had no problems with crashing. It's it's a much better system than that which has preceded it. Uh, I know people are moving to 8 now, I think. I have no desire to do that. It'll happen naturally when I buy a new machine. This is what I felt like has always been the case with Microsoft. They have a good operating system. When they come out with a new one, it's going to suck. And the one after that's going to be great. Um, you know, <laughs> Millennium versus XP, anyone? You know, X, I, I have a machine still running XP. Uh, it's been around forever, a laptop. It runs beautifully. It's, there's nothing wrong with it. I have no desire to change that. We have a scaled down netbook somewhere I have to find after this move that's, that's running a, a, a light version of XP. It runs great too. So, uh, PC's got more going for it, but when it comes down to hardcore, who builds a better product? It's Apple. Let's take another one. Hi, Jack. This is Andrew from West Michigan again. Uh, I was calling in regards to a question that was asked on episode 1090, one of the Lister Colin shows. Uh, it was in regards to actually another show you did where you were talking about the boom then bust and you were talking about the libertarian side of the, your stance on the illegal immigration. Uh, my question is, if we ever did have a system where we didn't have the benefits or the motivations besides a chance and a better life, and we got rid of all the social welfares and the, the documents printed in foreign languages, um, what do you think that would do to wages in America? Do you think that would still drive them down, or we'd only have the best and the brightest, so it would make all wages go up? Um, just kind of sparked an interesting question that I couldn't quite figure out for myself. Uh, I wonder what your thoughts were on it. Well, the show cue was a great work. Thanks, Jack. See, if we're not careful, the question leads us into the trap that the reason that wages aren't what they used to be is all because of illegal aliens. Um, and we stop asking certain questions that are a little bit bigger, like why does a dollar buy so much less today than it used to, and how is it that wages seem to keep place with inflation, yet people's spending power drops anyway? And it's because the inflation rate is far different than the published inflation rate. Um, and if you don't believe that, ask a single mother trying to feed two kids on a single paycheck. And she'll tell you that food prices are going up and the cost of living is going up faster than her wages. Because it is. So our, our number one problem with wages today isn't that we make less money than we used to. It's that we make more money but not enough more money than we used to to keep up with the inflation created by the Federal Reserve System. That's that's If you leave that out, then you're taking the the brunt of the blame from the people that deserve it and putting it on people that only deserve a small part of the blame. And that's what this is what you got to remember folks. That's exactly what your government wants you to do. And they don't care if you take the stance of defending the people that are partly responsible or attacking them so long as you don't go after the people that really did it. That way you'll all fight with each other. And you'll say, you just want all these people to come here and get everything for nothing. And that person will say back to you, you're just a heartless bastard. And the two of you fight while all the ass clowns in Washington fiddle while Rome burns and profit off of our misery and get away with it because you're too busy fighting with each other and blaming the illegal aliens. Now, let's talk about the kind of wage erosion that truly is part of illegal immigration. And then let's understand why. So, here's what people think. People think the reason that, that illegal aliens reduce wages is because they're just inherently willing to work for less money. That's just it. They just, just, they'll just work for anything. 
And, and it's, it's partially true, but then we have to stop and we have to start asking ourselves why. Why is that the case? Because I've never had anybody work for me, whether they were from Mexico or Canada or Germany or the United States or anywhere, that ever said, I'd like you to pay me as little as possible, please. <laughs> and I guarantee you anybody working anywhere wants as much money as they can get for their job. So why will a group of legal aliens come to the United States and then go work for a low wage? And the answer is because of the differential in the value of the currencies and the majority of the money that they're earning, they're not keeping. Um, they'll live in very, very poor conditions so that they can send the bulk of their paycheck back to Mexico where it's worth 10 times, or I think right now eight and a half times what it's worth here. And because they can't get a job in Mexico that pays anything close to what they can earn making slightly over minimum wage, say eight to ten dollar an hour range, doing backbreaking work here. So that's part of the problem. What's the next part of the problem? Because now we're not, and see, if we're talking about wage erosion, okay, then all the people that want to bash the illegal immigrants for riding the social system gravy train, which I agree with that. The social system gravy train is the problem, though, not the people using that system. If you put a system in place, people are going to use it. That's why they put it there. But clearly, the person doing that's not the one that's responsible for the wages going down. For a, see, this is where people get bigotry, and they don't even realize they're being bigoted. You can't blame the person on food stamps and welfare in government housing that doesn't work for wage erosion, can you? Because that person's not out competing for a job. That's the problem. Okay? So, the only people causing the wage erosion are the ones that are doing the work. They're the ones that we say that we want. So, why are they underpaid? Primarily because they're working in a hidden society. Okay? They're afraid to get caught and sent home. Because we know that the drug dealer will get away with it over and over again. The guy driving around with no insurance will get away with it over and over again. But every once in a while, just to keep up the illusion of bullshit from our government that they're doing something about it, they'll round a bunch of people up, and they'll specifically round up the people that really are causing the least problem so that not only can they pretend they're doing something about illegal immigration, but they can create all of these heartwarming stories about why we need comprehensive reform, because look at poor Pedro. Look what they've done to him. They want that person to be the one they send back, and they let the guy from MS-13 hang out here, get arrested 47 times, and he's still here, right? I'll tell you what, if you were a gang member and an illegal alien, I would deport your ass to Patagonia, and you can walk your ass back from there if you think you can figure that out. And how, well, what if Patagonia don't lie? I just drop your ass offshore. You can either swim or sink. Uh, it's not my problem anymore. Okay, um, and I'm being a little bit eccentric there, but I'm, I'm saying, you know, the people that are committing felonies that are here illegally, why are they here for more than a second? I mean, that should be immediately just here you go. But we don't want them. I'm tough shit. He's yours. Right. We need to take a strong stance on getting rid of that type of person. Either that or we need to put them in a prison system where they ride a bicycle and produce electricity for the rest of their lives. How about that? You want breakfast, Pedro? You make a kilowatt. You make a kilowatt, I'll give you breakfast. How about that? Alright, so there's a two totally different, actually we're talking about three classes of immigrant here that are here illegally. One, the illegal immigrant that's here committing additional crimes. They need to go at once. 
I mean, there's not even to be, there should be no argument about this. Nobody should be making a case for why that doesn't happen. And if you are, you've just got your head up your ass. Then we've got the people riding the social, social gravy train system. And those people need to be cut the hell off. We should not be providing government support for a person that's here illegally. I don't think we should be doing most of it for anybody. But I mean, clearly we should be able to say, look, if you're here illegally, you don't get this, you don't get food stamps. You don't get welfare. You don't get to live in government housing. What if they have children that are American citizens? Hey, that's not my fault. That's not my problem. That's not my problem. I didn't make that choice. They did. And they did because we've set up a system. Again, the system's a problem. Then we got this group that you're asking about, this group that's here working their asses off, that we're supposed to believe is the vast majority. And I'm going to tell you the truth. It probably is. And the reason they suppress wages is twofold. One, relative currency strength versus global currency strength. The dollar buys more in Mexico than it does in the United States. So to them, because they're willing to do what most of us are no longer willing to do, sacrifice at a deep level for our families, they'll work for that wage because it's not a low wage to them. And number two, because the system has created a complete climate of intolerance and hatred that's deserved but misdirected, they have to work in a hidden society where they're naturally going to earn a lower wage. And then let's be real about the last component of it. Many of them are doing jobs that most Americans refuse to do. And you say, ah, that's not true. Really? Really? So you want a job picking corn? Do you really want a job picking corn? Twelve bucks an hour. I bet you can find one right now. Well, they use all machines for that. Not for certain types of corn. Not for sweet corn. Nope. Can't, can't go driving a combine through a field picking sweet corn. That's got to be picked by hand. There's people that do it. There was a guy that was interviewed, farm, I think it was in Iowa, growing organic sweet corn. They said, why are you using illegal aliens? He said, because nobody else shows up, and when they do, they quit. He was paying people, I think, twelve fifty an hour to pick corn. And he's like, it's not even that hard. You pick the corn, you put it in a box, you hand the box up to the guy in the truck, and you keep doing that all day. And he had he had Americans show up that he hired that quit by noon, didn't even stick, didn't even ask to get paid for the time that they were there because they were so embarrassed that they were quitting because they didn't like the work. So they're willing in many, not all, but in many instances to do work that we won't. And we're the ones that have taught our children that that type of work is beneath them. So we're creating an even greater deficit in people that know how to use a hammer, drive a nail, turn a screw, pick a plant, right? We, we don't have the pool of labor to do that work that we should because we've told little Johnny and little Susie, oh, you don't want to do that, honey. You want a white-collar job. Go to college. Every child should go to college, right? So we have a group of people that think they're worth more than they are, Because they have a degree in doing jack diddly shit and they've never accomplished anything in their lives, but they got that degree. You know, and maybe I'll work as a waiter or a bartender as a stopgap, but that's about as, I mean, I'm not going out there and doing that other crap. There's your problem. So your problem is multi-headed. So if we got rid of the social welfare programs, that wouldn't really do anything with the people that are here under the radar and sending all of their money back to Mexico or whatever country they're from. It's just Mexicans making the largest block of men that are willing to not see their families for five or ten years and send almost everything they make back to them. 
And that's happening far more than anybody on the other side of the debate wants to admit. So how do you fix it? Well, you start with what you said. We get rid of the gravy train, and then we take that anger and animosity away from the American people. Why don't we do that? If the left really wants to fix the problem, why don't we do that? Because we want the animosity. Please understand that. Your government wants you divided. Stop talking about these people like they're not people. They're people just like you and me. And some of them are scum. Those are the ones committing felonies. We have a system for that. Let's use the system for that. Most of them are just people trying to get by. And if you had an opportunity for a better life for your family, would you take it? We've created the system. The people aren't the problem. The system is. Let's take another call. Hey, Jack. This is Keith from Denver. Hey, uh, just some kind of follow-up on that hate question you had today. It's the Friday the 22nd. Um, we've had a grass and alfalfa field out in eastern Colorado on 250 acres. We've been growing hay there for 15 years. And I know for the first five years, we dipped it up every year, leveled the land, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, and we kept getting just kind of mediocre alfalfa, mediocre grass. So what we did was we planted the alfalfa, let the alfalfa grow, planted grass right with, right next to it, and it kept growing beautifully. And you see, we saw the soil conditions improve, uh, especially when you got a lot of thunderstorms and rain, you know, getting the nitrogen into the soil. But with the new grass drills that they have out now, they're saying do not till the soil, do not disc the soil, do nothing of the sort. We, have, we haven't touched our field with herbicide, not once. I think one year we had really bad bugs, so we had to spray it with insecticide, but that, that was the only thing we've ever used. Other than that, it's been cow manure. Uh, I think one year we had to do uh, fertilizer, that was it. Other than that, like I said, grass alfalfa mix, get a drill, drill it, don't just plant it. And you'll be fine. We, we, we sell our hay to all the horse people. You know, it's some of the, the highest quality hay you can get out here. Um, don't touch it with herbicide because you, it's just going to be bad. And if you do have like two or three splotches of hay, give it to the cow hay guys. It's cow hay, period. You know, I don't know why guys don't, they want every single bale to be perfect, but it's not going to happen. You know, and if, the guy really doesn't like his prices. Tell him to ship it to Washington or ship it to North Carolina. He'll get through the roof prices. It's it's ridiculous what they'll pay for hay. Anyways, uh, thanks for the show. Talk to you soon. Bye. And see what you've got there, folks? It's just a simple polyculture. You've got alfalfa, which is a legume, which is a nitrogen uh, source, uh, with the grass. And you've got the grass net helping to hold the moisture in, and you've got the legume providing nitrogen. And that, that could probably even be improved more. You know, I mean, vetch makes a pretty good hay crop. So we could bring another legume in there. Um, there's, there's a lot of different ways that maybe that could even be done better, but it sounds like it's working great. One caution for people thinking this way, mentioned a little bit about fertilizer, and I think I heard the word manure in there you got to be damn careful what the source of that manure is today because a lot of the people that are feeding hay to their cattle are feeding hay that's had all these different herbicides in it, and now you've gone out of your way not to put herbicide in your field, and now you're bringing it in in the form of composted manure. So you got to make sure your source, if I was growing a field like this and selling it to, to, to cattle and, 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 uh, and horse owners, uh, I, that would be my first source of manure. 
if I know that I'm their sole source or they're getting all of their feed from people like me. That I want that I want to bring because now I'm bringing the minerals that came out of my field right back to it. Um, if I really wanted to do it, I mean, I'd prefer that they bring their cattle and just let them graze. I wouldn't even be making hay. It'd be a better way to do it. But if I'm going to make hay, that's how I would do it. Thanks for the call. Thanks for the thoughts. And uh, let's take another one. Hey, Jack. This is Joe from Southern Arizona. Um, I got a question about gardening for you. Um, it's about poor water absorption in, uh, in some bulk uh, local compost. Uh, last year, I got a couple yards of this compost from a facility, um, and it looked great, but it just wouldn't absorb water. Uh, after about five to ten minutes, only probably maybe the top three-eighths of an inch was saturated, and the rest was bone dry. I went online, and it said to add a wetting agent like soapy water. I did this, and it seemed to help. Um, but I've noticed in some, some other uh, bags of compost at uh, the local Home Depot uh, that some of them had wetting agents in them. Um, what could be the cause of this, and what's the story behind wetting agents? Um, could it just be bad compost or possibly leftover chemicals? Anyway, thanks for any info you have. Love the show. Uh, when you have a compost that won't absorb water, it's not bad. It's not poor quality. It's just been allowed to excessively dry. If you take any compost and you let it become really, really dry, you end up with a hydrophobic compost, a compost that just doesn't seem to take up water. And adding a wetting agent is a way to solve that problem. If you keep wetting it long enough, eventually it'll kind of start to rehydrate. It's kind of like if you've ever had a, a dish uh, sponge that you've kind of just really let go. It's been used heavily, and it shrivels up, and it just looks gnarly. It takes a lot more to get water into that sponge than when it was dry, but it was still malleable. That's kind of what's going on. You've got little different components inside that compost, and all of those little components are made up of organic matter and should be very sponge-like. It should be very water-retentative. But once they get really shriveled and really, really dried, which happens a lot of times in mass-produced compost because it's done at such a scale, it's shipped all over the place, it's stuck in this bag, and then it goes over there and it gets conveyor belted here, that's what's going on. It's just gotten so dry, it's become hydrophobic. And as long as it's good compost as far as the source, and we're not dealing with any chemical uh, contamination of it, it's no problem whatsoever. Wetting agents are also used. Some soils are kind of gutless, and they just won't take water. And it's a great way to solve uh, that problem. If you have an area that just won't absorb water, as long as you're using an organic product, uh, a wetting agent is a great solution. It's nothing to hold back on giving a shot. Uh, but that's what's going on, just overdrive. Let's take another call. Hi, Jack. It's Ios from the forums. I had a quick question about salt in a breakdown scenario. Other than stockpiling it, what are some other ways that we can come up with salt during, say, a breakdown situation or something that's happened in Cyrus or Cyprus, rather, where it's a cash-only situation and, you know, or barter situation? Is there ways to recycle it, get it from plants? Uh, just wondering some ways we can come up with salt in case uh, we have a breakdown scenario. Thanks for all you do. Appreciate you. Bye. I mean, the first thing to just understand with salt is it's so flipping cheap. There's really no reason to not just store maybe 10 pounds of salt and just have it 
And and that, that's going to take most people a long way, even if things go really wrong. And understand that for all of the hoopla about how once wages were paid in salt and things like that, yeah, that's not so much the case anymore now. Is in there's a reason that salt is dirt cheap. There's a lot of it out there. Um, when Selko from uh, Shit at the Fan School, who went through the Balkan Wars, was asked about the value of salt and, and this place was completely cut off, he said, yeah, it was worth something, but not as much as a beer, not as much as food. It was just it was minimal. So it's it's probably not the the huge thing that everybody thinks about when we start having you know discussions about you know a true huge global breakdown. The easiest source of salt obviously would be any coastal region with salt water. You evaporate water, you leave salt behind, sea salt. And you know so In a country like the United States, if there's any form of commerce left going on, um, that would be a, a, an immediate cottage industry, and it's not hard to do. There's, I've seen, you know, salt harvesting facilities in Portugal where basically they have these big concrete tanks, and when the tide comes in, they fill up, and then they seal them off, and they let the evaporation start, and guys walk around with these things that look kind of like uh, squeegees. And they just kind of rake the salt up out and scoop it up, and there you go. So that would be the easiest way. Um, in a real hardcore situation, there's salt in blood. Um, blood holds a lot of the minerals, including sodium. So uh, animal blood could be a source of salt, though a limited source, but a source. Um, there are salt veins and salt, we would call them not really mines, but salt sources, Uh, in various locations in the United States. Somebody one time, I think, sent me a list of places like that throughout the U.S. where you can actually get salt out of the ground around here. It's not anywhere like Siberia, uh, but there's plenty of it. So, I mean, my solution to salt is just store some. It's, it's, it's something that's so freaking cheap. I mean, it's, it's even cheap to store maybe 50 pounds of salt. And that's going to go a long way, even when you're using some for preserving hides and things like that. Um, it's, it's not a huge concern, but I do think it's something that we should at least store some. You know, if nothing else, 10 one pound packets of salt goes in your eat what you store, store what you eat, prepper pantry, uh, so to speak. And that's probably more salt than most people need for basic food uses, but there are other uses for salt, uh, including medical uses and including things like, Uh, preserving uh, things with salt, pickling and hides and all that, biltong and all that other good stuff. So store some up. Don't overstress about it. Um, but your number one way to produce it would be with coastal resources, uh, which would mean it would be probably one of the first things to return to commerce, even in a large-scale breakdown, because even very primitive methods uh, are quite effective at the production of salt. Uh, let's go ahead and take another call. Hi, Jack. My name is Aaron, and I'm from Oklahoma. My question is, is I'm an ex-con who's been out for almost three years now. I'm a productive citizen in society, and I need to know the best way to prepare defensively for my family because we don't have the availability to buy a weapon firearm-wise because of uh, my convictions. And so uh, I was just wondering if there's any way that you could help me prepare for that and Just give me some information. That'd be great. Thanks. Bye. It's a difficult question. Let me say what I always say when I'm asked about this. Um, 
Personally, I believe that a person that's convicted of a felony uh, losing their right to possess a weapon is completely constitutional and acceptable um, initially. Because uh, clearly we have the authority to take away rights and privileges when you commit a felony. Because if we didn't, there wouldn't be a place called prison where we take away your your right to liberty. So um, having a, a, a suspension of rights for the commission of a crime uh, is constitutional and, 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 and reasonable in how you run a society. There should be consequences for your actions. But that said, I believe that a person, even a person that committed a felony, uh, that has gone through the prison system, served their term, and fulfilled the complete obligations of parole probation, and has stayed clean, and has been basically said you're done, uh, should re- re- then ret- all rights should return to that citizen. All rights, including the possession of a firearm. And he's like, well, you got to commit a crime before. Yeah, and if the person's going to re- be recidivist with criminal activity, they're going to go get a gun to rob a store anyway. They're not going to be like, oh, gee, I, I, I'd like to go back to being a criminal, but I uh, can't have a gun, so I guess I'll use a, uh, I guess I'll use a rock. You know, I mean, come on, you, you got to use your heads, you didn't, any gun idiots out there. Um, so I, I'm, I'm sorry. That in spite of the fact that you seem to have put your life back together, and I don't know whether you're finished with your obligations, but even when you're finished, you won't have that right. It, it, it would be something I would change if I could, and I can't, at least not right now. So therefore, we have to deal with your core question. And I would say that the biggest thing that a person should do that's in your situation is understand that the greatest place that we're generally at risk is in our own homes from invasion uh, and during a crisis from looting and things like that. So the first thing to do is to focus on the security, which even the armed citizen should do at first. Good security measures. If you can put a perimeter fence in with a dog, that solves a lot of problems right there. Uh, a ton of problems right there. We had to put Max away the other day because the cable guy came because we had a problem with one of the cable boxes. And we're like, he won't hurt you. He's like, oh, I'm not going to be coming in there. Right? So there's a, a certain level of, of, of legitimate fear and then even irrational fear in the mind of an invader when there's a big-ass dog running around. So perimeter fence and dog. And I say perimeter, I mean front, back, sides, all the way around the house. That's the best way to handle that. Security with your door, products like window films, uh, the door sentinel, those are two great products. Products for when you're away from home so you don't come home in the middle of a robbery unarmed, uh, like fake TV, uh, like timed lights. Uh, additionally, if you can't have a big dog, even a little dog, a yippy yappy, that kind of dog, at least it creates uh, an environment where the criminal loses that, that element of surprise. Criminals don't like noise when they're trying to burglarize a house or get into a house. Even if the dog can't do them harm directly, it ruins the, you know, cause usually criminals don't kind of walk up and knock on your door and go, Hey, criminal here to rob you. Open the door, please. Right? They, they have a certain uh, modus operandi that they go under, which involves trying to not be detected until the last possible moment. So anything you can do to interrupt that. I would get, and I don't think there's probably anything to prevent you, maybe from carrying, yes, but from having in your home, no, pepper spray. And I would get sizable pepper spray. My preferred brand is Cold Steel. Three and a half ounce containers are pretty damn effective. Uh, and I would have those Velcroed in different places all over your home. We do here. 
Okay, so uh, behind uh, you know behind the curtains and near uh, the door, uh, you take a piece of two-sided Velcro and you stick it to the wall, and you put the other piece of Velcro on the on the can and you stick it there, and you want under the table. And I I know people say things like I I knew a guy in special forces that put it on his his MREs and it doesn't always work. And it works. It works really really good. And the one person it doesn't work on is no more likely than the one person to get shot twice in the chest with a three fifty seven and doesn't stop. That happens too. But no one thinks the three fifty seven is ineffective. And those that say well, he put it on his MREs, yeah, I put Tabasco sauce on my MREs. I like it. Tabasco sauce is good stuff. Stick some of that shit in your eyes. And I mean, just there's people that are just ridiculous on that. So pepper spray is something that I would use. Um, any type of blunt instrument, uh, you can get into trouble for carrying. Here's a little side right here. So people think nunchucks are specifically illegal. Generally, it's not that nunchucks are illegal. That it's it's that there's what's called in most states when it comes to carrying on about your person things called an illegal club. Uh, a device that would serve no no purpose other than to be a club, and nunchucks are just considered one of the many forms of an illegal club. There's a little uh, a little side for you, but generally in your home, owning things like baseball bats is perfectly acceptable. Uh, for walking around, I might go out to Cold Steel and get myself a really good walking stick. You know, not one with a sword built into it. That's going to violate, you know, things with weapons. Just a really good one, though. A really good hard knock the crap out of somebody with stick. Um, it's better than nothing. You know, I always say that, uh, you know, people put down the .22, but a .22 handgun beats a sharp stick any day. Um, but a sharp stick uh, beats a dull stick, and a dull stick beats no stick. And a good heavy club like cane that's completely legal to carry uh beats you know things you know things as well um you know I don't know pocket chain yeah it's you know a pretty good little implement as well anything that can be used as an impact tool or a cubaton I understand in some states cubatons are considered weapons uh which is kind of ridiculous that they would tell anybody even a prior felon that you couldn't carry that but um i have a little fire striker it's kind of cool um it's called the aurora fire starter it's uh, made of 440c steel and a fair seam rod and it screws together so basically it's got a body with a little striker built into it and the ferrous seam rod that actually attaches to a keychain it screws into it and it's a little tube about the size of a cubaton but it's not a cubaton it's a it's a fire striker, and I, I think some folks were pretty surprised at some of the leverage that I was able to demonstrate being applied with that little tool um, at, at the uh, at the bar. We were playing around a little bit with it um, at the uh, Liberty Forum. So there's always ways. So what you have to start looking at is what can be used as a weapon that's considered acceptable to either be in my vehicle or to be carried or to be kept in my home. But the big thing to do is to focus on security in and of itself. Uh, motion detectors, if you want to, uh, security cameras and things like that. Now, let's talk about the other spectrum. Let's say the shit really hits the fan. I'm talking dogs and cats living together in marital relationships. The universe has imploded backwards and Superman is now the bad guy. I'm talking the end of the world as we know it. And I'm talking roving gangs and I'm talking, then you arm up. You arm up and deal with it later at that point. Um, at that point, 
I'm not really worried about the police coming out and arresting me for owning anything because if the police were doing their job, we wouldn't have roving gangs of looters and things like that. Now, you guys, you, you know me. I think that scenario, especially long-term, wide-scale, coast-to-coast, is highly unlikely. But if it does happen, then I might, I might, as a person that was prohibited from the possession of weapons, have a place or a trusted person who would, you know, say to me, no, Tom, not now, you know, but at the time that it got to that level, might be able to just accidentally leave someone, uh, a door open or something, and I might accidentally end up taking it with me when I left. I'm just saying, right? I might have a plan to obtain arms in a complete societal breakdown uh, with total disregard for the law because my family's life and my life are more important than conforming to a legal requirement. And I might do it very, 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 very smartly. And even once I've done it, I might only reveal that it's been done in a life and death scenario. And the second that society, um, you know, gets cleaned up, my buddy might find his gun again. All right. You see what I'm saying there? I'm talking about extraordinary measures, which is no different than any other extraordinary measure. If you said to me, Jack, would you ever drive over somebody with your pickup truck? I'd say, no, of course not. That would be a horrible thing to do to a person. And if you said, well, if there was a guy shooting at people in the middle of the road and you were coming down the road in your pickup truck and you saw him just taking people out in an active shooter scenario, would you run him over? I'd probably duck behind the firewall of the car and floor that sucker and mash his ass into the pavement. Why? He's killing people. Right? So would I ever advise a felon to possess a weapon that would result in their reincarceration? No. What if it's the apocalypse and zombies are chomping people's brains? And we know that's just an analogy. Maybe. Depends on the situation. Depends on the situation. I'm just saying I might have a plan for how to do it if it ever happened. And I would probably never do it unless it happened. Got me? All right. So let's take another one and we'll wrap up for the day. Hey, Jack. Average dude from the uh, forum here. Uh, in one of your uh, question and answer shows, you uh, made mention of inoculating your beds with uh, some type of mushroom fungus. Could you maybe uh, expand on that a little bit more? Uh, you know, where would you get this? How would you exactly do it? Uh, what are the benefits? Also, would you be able to use just fungus from the underside of wood sitting, say, that's been sitting out rotting in a forest for a while? Love the show, man. Thank you so much for everything you do. Have a great day. Um, there are literally hundreds of products that do this, and they're all probably pretty good. I've ordered one. I'm testing it when it gets here. Um, I'll actually do some control versus experimental group testing to see if the results are really there before I really recommend it. And I've, I've not used a product in that context yet where I can clearly state, yes, this works. So I won't give you a product recommendation, but in theory, there's no reason any of these products shouldn't work. Let's look at what we're doing, why we're doing it, and if it's even necessary at all. What we're doing, we're trying to establish a fungal net within the soil that we're growing in, is we're actually increasing the ability of every living thing within that soil to exchange nutrients and retain moisture. So by putting, you know, and like I said, a good uh, cubic meter of, of high-quality, fully alive soil will hold about 500 kilometers of fungal hyphae. 
And we're trying to get there. The only reason we're going to use an inoculant is for one of two reasons, and one will never apply to me. One, we're, we're conducting agriculture in such a way that we're disrupting the soil's ability to provide its own fungal net, and we're trying to overseed it so that we can compensate for our unsustainable practice. Okay, so uh, in a lot of agricultural situations with row cropping and things like that, they may be doing just that. They're plowing every year. They're not using no-till method, methodologies and things like that. So they'll inoculate every year in a lot of these organic, no, you know, organic row cropping operations, and it does work because you get a net faster, but you never get it as big, but it's better than nothing. The other reason you would do it is to accelerate a natural process. That's all you're doing. If you build a system with lots of mulch, lots of organic matter, and don't till the soil and keep it hydrated and work it over time, it will get fungus all over the place. Can you throw logs and stuff in there? That's part of why I think hugoculture works. There's a certain amount of that that occurs. Uh, if you went out and scraped up a, a bucket full of, of soil, uh, topsoil out of a forest, where there was all kinds of rotted logs and stuff, would it probably be loaded with fungus and could use that as an inoculant? Sure, I've done that. Uh, and that has seemed to work very well. The inoculant is simply to speed the process up and get the numbers up quicker uh, in a system that's sustainable and designed to be uh, a sustainable long-term no-till system anyway. So that's that's kind of the two worlds that you'd be coming from there. Either a system that's not really sustainable, even though it's natural, uh, it's, it's it's constantly being disrupted, and you're basically patching it with an inoculant, or a long-term system that you're simply seeding. So let's look at it this way. It's a lot like establishing a pasture. If I have a really crappy pasture, and but there's there is some material there, and I just start grazing it. With, with geese and sheep, for instance, and they start eating what's there, and I move them, and I don't let them overgraze it, and I keep pulsing them through the land, eventually, I'll end up with a pretty nice pasture, okay? And, and it, it will happen. And, I mean, when I looked at the work Alan Savory did, blew me away at how rapid and how uh, much would show up if you just started doing this. And it will be mostly natives, In fact, it will be all natives or uh, what we, we would call uh, an acclimatized uh, invasive. In other words, something that's basically functioning like a native now. Um, and that's great. But if I wanted that pasture to have certain ratios and certain things going on and I wanted to maybe speed the process up, I might go out and buy a whole bunch of really high-quality seed. And every time the sheep and the geese were done with a paddock, I might seed it. And that might speed it up. I'm going to the same place. It's not really necessary, but I might end up with different ratios, and I might end up with a faster result if I'm seeding. That's all we're doing with a fungal inoculation is the same thing. Because, again, if you have deep mulch, quality soil, and you're not disrupting the system, fungus are going to show up, uh, and uh, rather quickly as well. So we'll even see how much of a difference that there is. The other thing, though, is by seeding fungus... There's certain micro, 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 I cannot say that word. Certain fungi <laughs> that are very, very beneficial. Okay. That are the, the most beneficial, uh, particular strains that you can have in your soil. And, you know, an inoculant might have four of these. By seeding that, you're going to advantage the particular fungi that are the most advantageous 
for what you're trying to do. So that's kind of another reason you might do it. Anyway, with that, I've got everything wrapped up. Didn't say anything in the beginning of the show, so I'd like to remind you guys about the Member Support Brigade today. Hey, if you think you got two dimes worth out of the, the show that we just did for you and you're not a member yet, consider becoming a member, and it's a membership that pays itself back over and over. Two benefits alone are worth more than the entire first year of membership, and there's 38 other vendors that offer you discounts. I'll keep working on making that better. Military, law enforcement, Peace Corps, active duty, and prior service, and first responders like paramedics uh, and EMTs, firefighters, and the like, I give you guys a service discount. Email me, service discount, in the subject line, and I will get back to you with a discount code that will save you even more money. With that, I've enjoyed today's show. Please keep the calls coming. We knocked out 15 calls today. It's probably a record. I know it was a long show. I try to keep some of the answers short, though, and I look forward to hearing you. Remember, to be on a show like this, the number's 866-65-THINK, because we encourage you to think here at the Survival Podcast. And with that, this has been Jack Spierko with another episode of the show, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough, or even if they don't. We forget we are what we eat. I don't know the answer. It's like there's nothing I can do. It's the price we pay, I guess, when we follow all the rules. There's a better way to do this. Let me show you a better way. Revolution is